Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another awesome episode lined up for today with a great guest. And I'm going to use her LinkedIn description to introduce her today. As a computer science graduate, she learned very early in her career that it wasn't the technology that got her pumped, but how people use technology to make their work and personal lives easier, more creative, and more fun. I loved that description and thought it would be a fantastic way to introduce her today. She's currently the Director of Learning and Development at Siena. Please welcome to the show, Debbie Jackson. Hello, Debbie. Hi, how are you? I'm awesome. And I really did uh, truly appreciate the way that you described that. And as a fellow technologist that is very sensitive to the human element of, of what we do, I love the way that you described that because even though you do have a background in computer science and have spent most of your career working for big technology companies, um, none of this means anything without the people side of this. And that's really what we want to explore on Frontline Innovator. So I'm really excited to have you here today and I uh, can't wait to get started. Awesome. Excellent. I'm excited to be here. So let me ask you what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless frontline workforce today. It's interesting because if you'd have asked me that maybe three years ago, it might be similar, but I think the fact we've had a global pandemic kind of shifts that a bit. We've and had a pandemic? <laughs> yeah, amazing that two years of nothingness was actually labeled a pandemic. Okay. Um, and, I, and I say that with a smile, but when we look at the demographic we're talking about today, that was not a nothing two years. That for some was a horrifying two years. You look at your nursing and your medical community. Um, and so to your question, my short answer would be fatigue. But I think the context to that is if you step back and look at those last two years that our frontline workers have gone through, we've asked them to put masks on, which inhibit breathing, inhibit communications, make them have to speak louder maybe. Then we put plexiglass barriers in between them and their clients that they like to engage with, further inhibiting communication. And then of course you add in all this turmoil and change of what's fact with fiction about this pandemic because it changed daily on them, right? The regulation. So I think that stress and that fear that they lived with for two years, that's an ongoing stress that you have to, we can't help but recognize takes a toll on the body. And even when you remove, you know, that fight, flight, freeze, you remove that threat. The body still can hold on to the effects of that for months or years. So when I look at our frontline workers, I have to wonder like how much fatigue are they carrying, not just from the extra hours they had to work, people calling in sick, testing positive, can't come to work, their same workload, fewer workers. It's that emotional, physiological, mental fatigue of the change of just the, the weight that they've been carrying while showing up every day to do their job. 
Yeah. And I think that it's, I imagine it has to weigh on, on those folks as the rest of the workforce now is coming back out into daylight and, you know, everybody's got big smiles on their face, which is great. But Mm -hmm. to your point, many of the men and women that are working on the front lines have not had the luxury of working from their pajamas, from their kitchen. And, um, I I think that's gotta be an added burden on them. And, and I, we obviously don't really have a precedent in modern times for what to expect, you know, that helps us uh, imagine what to expect from this workforce and what we can be doing to help them recover. And, um, so I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, how that shakes out. I think that the great resignation that we're, we're seeing now is probably one of the, the effects of some of the things that you're describing. Do you think that there's a connection there? Absolutely. I think for whether you sat at a desk or you were a deskless worker, this pandemic has given people a chance to step back. They've been given time. Maybe our our frontline workers necessarily haven't been given as much luxury of time, but while they're going to the job that they are might be concerned puts their life at risk, they're thinking and reflecting like, is this really what I'm meant to do? Is this my purpose in life to do this? And people are stepping back and going, you know what, my family, my social network, my connections are the most important thing I have. And and my working, you know, 10 hours a day, five days a week is not going to fulfill that. That's a complex. So I do think a big catalyst for this great resignation is the fatigue that everyone I think is carrying and and just that opportunity to reflect, which when you were... going at lightning speed before that everybody's calendar was booked everybody was jam-packed you just tried to keep your head above water once the waves left and people started to reflect like is this what i want is this what i'm meant to be doing yeah i i think there's a silver lining to this i I think uh, employers need to get smarter about uh the the way that they hire and the way that they they nurture and develop the talent that they have And I think Mm -hmm. it's a good opportunity for employees to reset right now. There are more jobs and there are people to fill them. So it's, it's a good opportunity if they are out there reconsidering, you know, what the, the, the next segment of their career should look like. There's, there's never been a better time for them to do that reset. Uh, and we, those of us that are on the, the technology side that are implementing technology to these frontline workers have to be sensitive to the fact that the employers and, and the people themselves are going through a lot of that change. So if we want these, you know, technology investments to be successful, then we have to just take into account all the change that they're experiencing in, in the current state of their, their mind. Yeah. And, you know, change has been their only constant. When you think of policy changes, medical changes, what they can do, technology was thrown out to make things touchless, to make things remote. So much was thrown at them. And, and I think that's a really key skill that our frontline workers have had to build. And that's resiliency. You look at your nurses showing up every day, especially in that first year when there weren't vaccines, there wasn't a lot really understood about the pandemic. We were all learning about the virus as it went, went along. Like you had to be resilient. If you're still in the same job, there's a skill set you flexed there that helped you succeed and get through it. The key is, though, it might've been just getting through it. What now? Right. That's uh, it's a really good perspective. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing that. I want to give the audience a little bit of a uh, better understanding of, of who it is that they're, they're hearing from here. So um, give us a little bit of a, a journey of, of your, your past and how you ended up in the role that you're in today. 
So uh, as, as you mentioned, I am a comp computer science graduate. So I started in the technical industry. I started in telecom uh, with a very big telecom provider. I worked in R&D. I worked in uh, support, product verification, did development. Every role I took in that company, learning and facilitation came to me. Whether it was doing technical training, whether it was um, you know, the change management component of it. And I loved it. And I think that's why it came to me was those around me could see the passion I had and probably were like, oh, she can do it. You know, she loves doing it. And as I moved in my career, I, I did have a brief period of time where I owned my own company and I did consulting uh, into the, our federal government uh, doing transformation work, actually, uh, IT and service management tra transformation which was a lot of fun, but I love tech. And I, when an opportunity opened up to go to another major software company, it was like, yes. And it was in an account manager role, but it, it, the, the part that I loved about it was again, the introduction of technology with my customers and how to help them adapt to it, how to embrace it, how to adopt it so it, improve their lives and didn't hinder their lives, right? It wasn't a roadblock. It was a um, enabler and uh, really enjoyed my time there. And then got an opportunity to start up a support organization in another software company and thought, oh, okay, this is building, creating. And sure enough, within a few months there, I was asked to, to lead an enablement program for a global support organization. And that one was interesting too, because support is when you look at frontline, they are the ones dealing with the customers. They might not physically be present with them, but they are there responding, fixing, and trying to drive out enablement programs and get the attention when their lives are all about break fix was very interesting and in how we position that and you know include the, I like to call it the within the what's in it for me factor to get people to pay attention. Yep. Right. And even to support that kind of 70-20-10 learning framework, right? Ten, only 10% is curriculum. 20% is learning through peers, peer-to-peer -peer learning, learning from SMEs. 70% is that experiential learning. How am I learning on the job? How do, I, how do I get to exercise that skill? If we think of frontline workers, you're going to deploy a technology. How do I get to put my hands on it and try it before I'm out in front of the customer, right? And then even when I'm out there, how do I continue? If it's something I only use periodically, how do I continue to keep that skill fresh? So I have credibility when I go in front of my customer and have to use it the odd time that I do. So I learned lots there, but you can see the theme through my career. And finally it was, you know what? There's a calling here. I have a passion for it. I'm gonna get out of my, I coach, I'm a mentor. I push people to get out of their comfort zones to be the best they can be. So I thought, Time to follow my own advice, get out of my that. comfort zone. And into HR, I went into a, a director position for learning and development. And currently, uh, I'm responsible for all employee learning and development for the company I'm with. That's fantastic. I want to go back to something that you said um, to just understand this a little better, which is you, you described it as an enablement program. That's not with your current role, but I think it was in, in a previous role. Yeah. What, what, is, yeah. what does an enablement program mean? 
Well, for me, people, probably the most legacy term is training. You got to get some training done. Or then it became, no, I'm going to do some learning. To me, learning needs to be about what are we doing to enable our individuals? Is it enabling a new skill? Are we trying to shift a behavior? Are we trying to support a change? But learning needs to be about enabling individuals to do something in a different fashion. And I didn't necessarily say better because better is, is a judgmental word that if I'm the one you're trying to get to change, I might not think it's better. But yeah. enabling programs need to, to drive a shift, a change. And it's not just, like I said, with that 70-20-10, it's not just the curriculum. It's how are we reinforcing? Because for me, one of my pet peeves is when I see learning treated like a checkbox item. It's not a checkbox item. It never should be because it'll be forgotten within the, fir the first few months after it's taken if there isn't the other 20-70 component of it. And that's all part of an enablement program. It's, do I set you up with a SME if you've learned that skill? Do I, do I have a particular, you know, do I make sure the supervisor has enhanced so that they can be there to give that peer-to-peer -peer learning when people struggle, right? It's, it's just raising awareness that we need to think about the whole spectrum of enabling yeah. individuals, not just a program. You said something that really is important, and that is that change we always position those of us that are trying to drive the change into the organization, we always position it as better, more innovative, more efficient, right? And, and maybe there's just a little optimism and positivity around that because that's probably better for messaging. But the truth is for those on the receiving end of that, the old solution might be just perfectly fine for their needs, right? So we're asking them to change into something. I love that you said, you know, better is essentially a subjective term that everyone may not agree with. And we, what we are doing, though, in every case is asking for behavior change. And so I guess part of our job really is to determine with those men and women, do they see this as, as an improvement or as a step back for them personally? And how can we bring them forward to understand the impacts to the business? We've talked with a lot of change management professionals on this show who have really uh, educated me and hopefully our, our audience that we have to connect the dots to what's the bigger picture about this change. Yes, there may be some impact to you and some of it may even be negative, but here's why this is so important downstream. Here's how it ties to our bigger objectives, right? Um, but that's all easier said than done. Absolutely. And to me, if you don't, and, and that with them for short form, right? The what's in it for me, if you don't understand that as part of the larger change and as part of the enablement program you're driving, I would challenge that you will be successful. Can you be successful? Because if you don't understand the environment that your learners are in today, if you don't have some form of listening network or champions a voice back that not just gathers requirements, because requirements are a state and time, that have that two-way connection open to say, you know what, this kind of works, but you've just added 20 minutes onto my time with the customer to right. try and figure and get this input. Is that what you wanted? Because that's impacting customer experience. A developer isn't gonna know that. I've managed development teams. They, do, they, they love to create and develop. They're very well insulated from the customer. So 
having that channel, I, I like to use champions, a network of champions when you're deploying some significant change and you need to enable because they tend to be the voice of our learner, right? But they also are your voice for the wisdom factor. I firmly believe like if we are in, embarking on a project and we can't articulate why this is gonna make the end client, whoever that is, the worker, the individuals that we have to drive that change for, I seriously question whether we should be doing it. And maybe sometimes it's compliance or it's legal, but then we need to still have the story. We need to have the messaging framework that says why for our company, this is important, right? If it's health and safety for frontline workers, yeah, you might hate having to go through that every year. Yeah, I know that, been there. If you want us to stay in business and remain compliant when the auditors come, this is something you have to do. And by the way, maybe you make it a little more fun. That's one of my uh, uh, challenges because I'm also responsible for compliance is how do we make it a little more fun? Because I've never heard anybody go, woohoo, it's code of conduct time. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's do that training again this year. Nobody. But I have seen some awesome examples where it's been engaging and fun some of this, what I call mandatory training and frontline workers have to go through this, right? Yeah. Health and safety for sure, for a number of people. Can you share an example? Cause I'm having a hard time. I've seen a lot of the examples of the unfun version. Is there anything you can share? Uh, Absolutely. That... Absolutely. There were two examples that come to mind right away. Our IT organization, you know, there's always cybersecurity and security awareness. We all have to take it every year. Tons of fun. Tons of fun. <laughs> until a hacker runs your training. And the hacker is the person who is actually saying, okay, try that. No, no, just do that. Try that and train. Oh, alarms off. You know, like they made it so fun and engaging. It was scary. It really drove home how easy it was to be lured in. But our, our facilitator for the training was a cybersecurity hacker. And I got so much feedback. Like I'd be on a call and they say, by the way, I just took that IT. That raw, that was great. I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. And I had another one that um, harassment for uh, har harassment in the workplace. It was a zoom. It was a, a zoom call and it had, you know, the typical Brady bunch, nine boxes, all right. different demographics and just had comments flying out that would make you cringe. But then people were like, Oh no. Oh yeah. I could. Oh yeah. That doesn't land well when I hear that. You yeah. know, it, it, but again, people talk about, oh, was that the Zoom training? And I, I, at first I thought, we didn't do Zoom. Oh, you mean the one that had the Zoom call on it? Yeah. That's what it landed. Those messages stuck, right? That's where we have to get creative. Is I, I'm talking I, about I, it now. I, I love that. And, you know, something that we've done in my company and my day job is, you know, fishing is probably one of our biggest risks, you know, uh, phishing attempts through email. And we've had a number of them. Uh, most of them are spoofing my account because I'm the CEO of the company. So I guess people go out on LinkedIn and decide to do that. So they send emails to all of our team members from me. And I'm saying that with air quotes. What we have turned this into for a little comic relief, but really for repeat education is we screen cap, we don't forward, uh, but we screen cap those examples that are horrible and we post them in our slack channels internally and and so we all get a little fun out of that you know there was one that came across uh 
that was supposedly from Netflix recently that said, hey, the new Netflix movie sponsored by Netflix. And then it just said Netflix over and over and over again. And it was comical how bad it was. But what we're doing with that is we're hoping to raise awareness through this process. And to your point, with a little bit of comedy, a little bit of lightheartedness, mm -hmm. but I hope what we're doing in that process is reminding everybody to take an extra look at every email that comes across your inbox. So I don't think we're very good at this of using fun, but that's one example based on what you said that I think we're trying to, because cybersecurity is boring, but it's an important topic and we have to find a way to put a smile on everybody's face as we go through that exercise. So I love your example. And um, I, I think that's a, a great way to introduce fun into this. I love that you're also continuing to put the examples in there. That's part of that reinforcement, yeah. right? And keeping it at the front of mind. Again, back to this isn't a checkbox item. You didn't just take the training and then it's done. Bring those examples forward. I One of the most powerful compliance training I ever took was in a company, previous company, and they actually had, I don't know what agreement they got from the individual, but someone who had been caught doing some insider training actually spoke and was part of the training. And it was so impactful. I remember that. They managed, I don't know how they convinced the individual to pay it forward, basically, but wow, to hear the words and hear the impact and, he, and hear the fact he's now in jail. Wow. Um, it was like, again, I'm talking about it. it I remember it. It resonated. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's powerful. Now, you said something else before, and I, I think there may be multiple meanings for what you said, but I, I definitely took it, I think, a little bit differently. You said before, learning isn't a checkbox item. And, and my, the way I heard it in my head was thinking of the implementation team treating learning as if, hey, it's just another line item for us. We just have to get mm -hmm. this done. And I think that's maybe part of what you're saying. But I think the other part that as you expanded your thought a little bit, I realized that what you were saying is it's not just a one and done activity. Learning can't just be at a single point in time. Am, am I understanding you right on what you meant by that? Absolutely. And on both points. And I would elaborate on the first point as well. It is so important for implementers. The amount of times my team get pulled in at the last minute, like we're ready to go live. We need this, this, we need a training program. And it's like, okay, you've just limited your options on creativity, on diversity of talent, modality of learning. Learning needs to be in at the beginning because again, learning specialists will ask those questions like, why are you doing this? What's in it for the learner? What, what's shifting? What's the, what's the value prop in doing this? Because they will build and get training that tries to deliver that message, deliver that outcome, right? So I think it's very, to your first point, I think it's very important to get learning involved very early in a project lifestyle cycle. But then yes, it's never one and done. If you think, well, look at our academic, when we get academic training, right? University, high school, elementary, you take the course, you pass, maybe you get a great mark, you never use it again. You've taken the course, therefore you must be an expert. Right. Like, I'll tell you, I took calculus for two years in university. Please don't get me to do a problem yeah. in calculus. I've taken two programs. I did quite well. I met, somehow managed to do pretty well on it. 
could not answer a question today at all. That's interesting. It's an interesting and perfectly valid point. Yet we, we do that same thing with employees in our organization where we, we deliver that to them one time, we check the box, Mm -hmm. uh, we check their proficiency at a moment in time, but we know that people forget and repetition is what, you know, brings us to that continued, you know, capability over time. Well, why do you think it is that organizations struggle with this? I, I, I'm always fascinated to see, like, we know this, everything we're talking about sounds obvious, right? And, and it's not complicated. So it's, it's actually pretty simple. I understand that it's not easy, but I don't sometimes, actually, I don't ever really understand why it's so difficult for enterprises to prioritize this and make the appropriate investment. It's interesting. I think so much funding, and you would know this, goes to tech. If I'm implementing a tech project, likely the biggest dollar amount is the technology itself. Yep. So then we figure out what remaining budget we can squeeze out. And there's the project timelines, there's the testing, there's the development, um, the integration points. Oh, and learning. Okay, what kind of course can you put together that we can just roll out? Ideally, e-learning, just push it out, make it mandatory, tell them they have to get it done by a certain time and we're good. There needs to be a fundamental shift in, in enabling individuals. And that's why I go back to that enablement. It's not learning. You're, you, you're deploying this new tech. Why? You need, the, you need people to use it. You need them to adopt it. Then enable them to do that. The curriculum is absolutely critical for that. But have, I know I've been in this case. Have you ever been in a situation where you have sat down, you've gone through, whether it's e-learning, you've been in a physical course, right, with an instructor. Yep, makes sense. Yep, good, good, good. You go and apply it the first time and go, oh, we didn't cover that. Oh, I don't remember that. Or it didn't work that way in the course. That's where the real learning hits the road. That's where the true enablement happens is, and how are we supporting the employees on that journey? right? The actual journey of handling the technology, of engaging with the technology. And my concern when we talk about this with frontline workers is if we haven't given them that experiential learning, right? That hands-on learning, getting comfortable with it before we go live, their credibility, like think of a nurse, potentially the top nurse on the floor, highly skilled, lots of expertise. She gets handed a device that she took training on, she's smart, made sense. She's supposed to use it for the first time in front of a patient who might be in a, maybe it's a cancer ward, maybe it's somewhere that's a highly stressed ward and she's fumbling with it and she doesn't know how to use it. Her credibility is at risk there because, oh my God, you're gonna put, you're gonna work with me on my situation and you can't handle that device in front of you. It just raises the stress for the the patient, the customer, her or him, and and potentially the credibility of the business, right? You got people out there and they don't know how to use the uh, technology. So it it is starting to change. The research I'm doing now, you know, you talked about employees, not enough jobs, more jobs. And I, I actually saw some interesting research that says, you know, employees... At this point, it's almost like companies are working for employees. 
Yeah. Not employees working for companies. And one of the biggest things coming out of the research is investment in the individual, employee development. How are you going to help me grow in my career? How are you going to help grow my skills? Right? It's not always about money. And I think that's the thing employers struggle with. They think, well, I'll give more money. And it's like, no, I want to actually grow. I want to learn something new. I want to have value and impact. And, and how do you do that? I, I think that's tough. We, we've seen that in, in our company. We're very sensitive. I want people to feel that they're being paid appropriately you know, for, um, for the work that they do here. We also know because I just sit down, you know, we're a relatively small company. I get to sit down with every employee on the team over time. And, and I ask them for feedback on that. And, and even in a small company like us, most of them say it's access to mentorship. That is, is an important part, their ability to develop as professionals. In some cases, we've had some, uh, some team members who have recently achieved um, getting a, a new degree, a master's degree in many cases, and they like being in an environment where it's safe for them to explore new things that they've learned and put them into practice inside an environment where they're encouraged to do those kinds of things. Right. So I'm proud of, of that, that we have here, but I acknowledge that we have a much less complicated, you know, environment because we're a relatively small company. And so some of those things are easier to enable in an organization of our size versus most of our clients are organizations of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds mm -hmm. of thousands of employees. And those things aren't quite as easy to enable, but I do think it's, it's really interesting. It's so much talk when you look at the press and their coverage of the great resignation, a lot of it does come down to things that are important, but probably not really the driver, right? It comes down to salary and benefits. They talk about that stuff a lot as you're reading articles about this. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that there's a, a professional development element even with people that may not use the term professional development, many of the frontline workers that we might talk to might not say that expression of professional development, but what they are seeking from their leadership is development of their professional skills, right? They want to feel confident and they want to feel competent uh, about the job at hand. And uh, they want to feel the pride of, of knowing that they can do their job well. And I think I've told this story a bunch of times, but I'm probably never going to stop telling it. My experience, I did a ride along with a guy named Eric in one of our customers in, in his truck. And he said something that, you know, when he's standing there using the technology in front of the customer and he gets frustrated or doesn't know how to do something, he feels like he's on an island. And that statement still brings an emotional response to me. I remember it like he said it to me yesterday. And I think I may be coming up on two years since I had this conversation with Eric. That, that is how many men and women on the front line feel. They feel like they're on an island by themselves because all the points that you just made, yeah. you were talking about a nurse and he or she is standing in front of a patient and there's always stress because there's a huge compliance requirement. We've got people's lives at stake. Right? Yeah. We're asking them now to input all of the things that they just did with that patient into some piece of technology to make sure that we have a record of all of that. And there is a lot of stress there and they do feel like they're on an island. Now, in the case of Eric, the driver, He's out in a truck running a route. Um, the nurse, he or she may be standing in a big building with a lot of other nurses and patients around, but they still, for that moment, feel like they're on an island by themselves. And it's our job to make sure that we give them the, um, you know, the, enable them to, to use your term, to really enable them to be successful and to feel confident and competent about the things that are required to do their job. And I, I love what you said about the mentorship, because that is something people... And I, I 
hear it in, in the company I work at, people want an opportunity to learn from someone else. We've been so isolated for the last two years that being able to connect, and we would hear this from um, people coming in new, they didn't feel comfortable reaching out or, and, and probably one of the most painful things I've read recently is we try and make time for employees to learn, like physically blocking time. The number one thing we hear back is it's, it's so nice to have it blocked because I don't feel guilty learning. You know, I don't feel guilty investing in myself. I think it's hard even with those of us in non-frontline worker roles to carve out time because there's always more work to do than we have time to get it done, right? And I think when you talk about time and, and giving people space, that's something that's come up a lot in these conversations on the podcast because I think many frontline workers are evaluated based on quantitative metrics. How many customer transactions have you mm -hmm. had? How many things have you sold? How many deliveries have you done? How many work orders have you completed in a given day, right? So they're very quantitative measurements. And then at the same time, we introduce a whole bunch of change and other new learnings that they have to do. And the question is always, have we afforded them the time to be able to do what we're asking them to do and still meet the numbers, right? So maybe the question is, if a field service technician is supposed to do eight work orders a day, have we let them do six a day during this period of time when they have some professional development to do? Or is that not considered acceptable, right, in that organization? And there, it's, it's a fundamental breakdown in, in making the time for that. And I think when we talked just a few minutes back about why is it treated like a checkbox exercise in many cases? I think it's because business leadership often can't or doesn't feel that they can make the investment because that is what's happening. They have to make an investment. If you're saying you've got a workforce and the expectation is to do eight work orders a day, and we're saying now in order to absorb this change, you might have to go down to six work orders a day, that has to come from somewhere, right? Where's that going to come from? You're either going to generate less revenue on the work orders you know, that you're doing, or you're going to have to bring in more people, or there, there's got to be some answer to that, right? And I think that's where it breaks down. Well, we can't, we, we just can't do that. We can't have them only do six work orders a day. Okay. Well, then, then we shouldn't do this new change. That goes to your point. And I've said this countless times myself. If you can't do that thing to make room for this change, then you should not do the change. And that's hard to hear. And as a guy who's spent most of my career pushing technology out into these opportunities to, to help an organization be more efficient, I've come to realize if the organization is not at a point where they can make room for that change, then they should not do it because they're setting them and their users and their vendors up to fail. And that's why I think a lot of major IT initiatives spend a good part of their time in crisis mode because they haven't made room proactively. And now they've already pushed it out because you know, the, the culture in the business was pushing it out. And now they're dealing with the repercussions of not having allocated the proper room for that change. Absolutely. And that's where, again, coming back to that project implementation timeline, that needs to be worked into it. Like the whole enablement plan, how are you going to enable staff who are always on the floor, who are always engaged with customers? You do have to build in that pullback because let's face it, when a technology initiative deploys, it's not skyrocketing green numbers right away. In no. fact, 
I would highly expect it to dip. I would expect productivity to go down. I would expect some numbers to go down and we need to prepare for that and then say, what's our threshold and when do we expect, you know, that momentum to really go forward and be measuring to that. So many projects look at start, go live, we're done. Yeah. And to me, no, no, that's the start. When you actually put the technology in place, now we get to start the journey, right? There's just no planning or it's the mature companies that really start looking at that's the, the, the go, the go live is really the start of the enablement journey. You know, what you're making me realize is if you even think about how most, most large organizations deploy big technology projects, they are often largely facilitated by IT which says almost by definition that the biggest, most meaningful thing is the technology itself. And so maybe there's a fundamental breakdown in, in how we're funding projects. Like they, they often become projects managed by the CIO's organization. And of course they've got stakeholders in the business and maybe they pull in L and D at the right time, maybe. Right. But most of the time they don't. And so it's, it becomes a technology. One of our guests said, and I, I, it kills me that I don't remember who said it, but it's the difference between an installation and implementation is yes. considering the adoption, right? And that's right. I think a lot of, and listen, I've spent my whole time working with career IT professionals and I love the work that we've done together. But as I think about it, their expertise, their training, their passion is really about making the technology work, not necessarily thinking about all of the downstream implications to the humans. And, and perhaps there's an opportunity and maybe somebody much smarter than me can, can feedback and, and give me some advice on how to, how to do this. But it's, it's almost like flipping it around where the project should really be led by operations or by a, another organization. The change management teams should actually be the ones responsible for the project with technology being the enabler, but not the thing. And I know that's hard to say, because like you said, most of the investment is going to be spent on the tech, Tech, right? I get that. And so that, that, that's kind of how it ends up in the CIO's organization. But I think it leaves out the biggest constituent, which is the end users, is not well addressed. And I think you're seeing a shift. I know um, companies I've worked in, and even my current company, right? There's PMOs, program management offices. <clears throat> There's folks trained in change management. They are starting to take some of these bigger programs and putting them in under an office like that. Because when you're in that role, you're independent of the technology. You're independent of the tasks. You're independent, actually, of the, the clients or the end users. But you can then look and manage it like a business program, right? So you've got IT. IT is going to be critical. Um, they've got all the cool stuff. They get the funding, the money for all the tech, yep. right? Yep. It's the fun spot to be. But then you've got your end user representation. You've got your change champion network, hopefully in place. You've got L&D in place early, trying to assess for this particular project, what is the right enablement strategy and the right enablement plan to make these workers successful. And we do need to see that shift. I think companies are starting to realize that because we have seen so many situations where tech has rolled out and hasn't been adopted or has not gotten the ROI that it's expected to have, right? If it's measured at all, 
that's another issue, right? Do we is there even a measurement on ROI when the tech was, when the technology is deployed? Again, that only because then you would also be considering, yes, there's a bit of a dip and then it goes up. But that dip is where you're incorporating the enablement for your, your workforce, pulling them back, as you said, from eight to six, so that they can get that training in and they can have the hands on. And that's so critical for frontline workers. Do not sit them down in a, in a classroom, talk at them for eight hours a day when they're likely people who are used to being on their feet, engaging, active, and then expect you're done. Well, I taught yeah. them. And if it's tech, if you don't even let them touch the tech before they have to use it in front of the customer, I think at least you and I, we know that's not going to be a pretty picture, right? It's, it's not going to land. Well, now what I'm about to say, I know it's going to come across as biased because most of our listeners of this podcast know that I, I run a company where we have a, a training platform oriented toward frontline workers. But one of our clients did a survey recently of their field service technicians, a global workforce. And the number one request that came back in this survey was that they wanted more hands-on experience of the software before they were asked to go out and use it in production in the field. And so of course it was music to our ears. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, you know, but all biases aside, this, this was, th that feedback was not staged, right? It, we didn't, yep. we didn't put these questions in there designed to draw that feedback out from the workers. I, I thought this was totally fascinating. The, the, the people that were responding to the survey had no idea that we were involved in, in the wings with this initiative. They were just speaking from their mind saying, what do you need to be more effective with the use of these technologies? And a high percentage of those users came back and said, we, they weren't using the term experiential learning, but that's basically what they were saying. We, we want hands-on experience before we go out into the field. And it's that pressure. I think I I've come to become, uh, I've become very sensitive tripping over my words there, but I've become very sensitive to that stress that we put on users when we drop them prematurely into production software. It didn't occur to me until probably the last year or so, how stressful that can be. And this isn't just frontline workers, you know, field service technicians and retail employees. I think this may be all employees, <laughs> you know, you and I touched on this a little bit as we prepared for today. It's not just frontline workers, but I think many people have an extraordinary amount of stress when they're dropped into mm -hmm. a production environment and they, they start to have feelings like, well, what if I do something wrong? What if I break something? What if I enter something wrong somewhere and it, it triggers a, a bad report somewhere? And I, those are legitimate questions. Mm -hmm. So how do we get them to a point where they can feel confident and competent before we put them in that production software? And um, we've got to give them hands-on access to the system before they go live. Absolutely. Uh, like whether you write code we have, we have uh, learning solutions that have labs. So you can go in and you can play and you can break and you can do whatever. Yep. You're, you're putting in a new point of sale technology. Get that in the hands before yep. they have to use it for real. Because, yeah, you don't want something that should be $1 run through as 200 or 100 or 1,000, right? Yep. It's, it, it, yeah. I had I an executive... That was music to my ears, by the way, when you did, you mentioned that survey, because that's what I continue to hear as well. Yeah. So I think that's common, whether you're sitting at a desk or you're a frontline worker, give me hands-on. 
Well, and I had an executive, I won't name the company, I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but um, probably a global 100 company that said to me, oh, we're, we're, we don't have to deal with any of that stuff. We're planning to roll out iPhones so that we don't have to deal with any of the training and communication stuff. I, and I was just floored. I've, I will never forget the day that this gentleman told me that. In his mind, they were relieved of the responsibility of change management and providing a, a learning experience for these folks because they were rolling out their enterprise technology on an iPhone. And so they thought, well, the iPhone's just going to be basically, you know, DIY. They're just going to pick it up and figure it out. And I just, you know, it, it's fascinating to me that people would look at any enterprise technology rollout with that approach. Now, I don't know if that gentleman still works for that company or not. Uh, and I don't know if the project is successful or not, but uh, I, I would place a big wager that it wouldn't be, <laughs> you know, but that mindset is just broken because yeah, sure. It's, it's one thing when you're playing on Facebook or Instagram and you know, that the worst thing is that you post an embarrassing picture and you go back and delete it later. Right. If that's a, but, but your job's not at risk, right. Your customer's not going to get an invoice that's wrong because you made a mistake in the software. Like I just can't even fathom trying to connect a consumer experience on an iPhone with, with that of an enterprise employee in a large, you know, global 500 company. And, um, but that's, that is how many decision makers make decisions about rolling out technology is they think they chose the right software vendor. They think they chose the right implementation company. They think they chose the right device so that they get out of just saying, well, Hey, we're just going to send it out there and just kind of see how it goes. The, the other part that you said that just, you know, strikes a nerve with me is about the, the measuring the ROI piece after it goes live. And I, I, you would believe it apparently, because I can see your bottom language <laughs> as, as we're talking about this, but the number of companies that we talk to when we ask them how things are going with the use of their production software. And you know, sometimes it's crickets. They're not, they're not measuring it. And what's happening is that the pain is felt by people in the organization that the the um, misuse of the enterprise technology is just being absorbed by people in the organization who have come to see it as just ordinary behavior in the company. Well, yeah, the, the field techs never document the parts that they're using. So I just have to call all the guys at the end of the day and check to see which parts they put into that piece of equipment so that we can go invoice the customer correctly. I'm like, really? So do your, your work order management software doesn't have a way for them to track the parts? Oh, no, it does. They just don't do it right. Oh, really? So we're just absorbing those kinds of behaviors into organizations. Like that was probably one of the reasons that the company rolled out the new work order management softwares <laughs> so that they could track the parts better. And then I hear stories <laughs> about, you know, the back office folks burning bunches of cycles, just fixing things because, you know, it's often guys, the guys in the field aren't doing it right. And that just pains me. And, and I don't understand these projects are millions or tens of millions of dollars. And, um, and I think we've just become complacent with, you know, subpar performance uh, and use of those systems. And we need to set the bar a little higher. Well, and it goes back to what I had said earlier about, you know, when you go live, when a tech program goes live or project, that's the beginning. Yes. So that champion network that I talk about, which is so valuable, I also like to refer to it as a listening network. If you've got that in place and you're going, you, you've got them entrenched, they're the right 
And there, there is a profile for these champions that you really want to have, right? They, they need to be comfortable being visible, but they're going out, they're advocating on the use of it. They're helping on the use of it. And they're channeling back to the implementation team. And this is why implementation teams should not disappear on go live, right? Right. They need to, to have a life too, uh, where they continue with the project. And they're saying, you know what? For some reason, nobody's filling in these parts. Now, as a champion, they would be asking, well, why? Well, it's because I can't even see it fully. Like on my device, I can't see the field. It's just such a pain. I don't bother. I'm in front of the customer. I'm not taking the time. I'm not making them experience yes. my pain. Oh, okay. Maybe it wasn't tested on a device that small. Maybe it looks great on a laptop monitor for the guys that are rolling it all up, the numbers. Who's not standing in front of the customer with them tapping their foot, trying to get done with this transaction? Right. Like, like, really, is this so difficult? You're just trying to get me a, an email sent to me confirming what we did. So that's, again, that champion network of saying you're the, you're the eyes, the ears, you're the advocate, but send back and make sure that you listen. That's the other thing. You, there's no sense having champions if you're not going to listen to their feedback. Right. That's a, a really good point that has come up. A lot of our change management professionals on the show have talked about that too, is it's, it's not good enough to just ask the question, but we have to actually listen to what they're saying and then incorporate yeah. that back into the process. And you and I didn't touch on this a lot today, but I, I can imagine you believe strongly in this too, that it's, it's about developing trust with the, the folks in the field. And, and one of the greatest ways to develop and continue to nurture that trust is to take that feedback and turn it into something actionable and turn it into future conversations that we have with the men and women that are affected by these changes, right? So, um, and it doesn't always have to mean that we make the change that they've requested. Sometimes it may mean that we can't make that change, but we still owe them feedback so that they know that they're exactly. being heard. And that's, um, that, that's a really huge component of, of building that trust with those folks. Uh, absolutely. And you're right. We can't always fix everything, but we do owe them feedback. If someone takes the feedback is a gift. If somebody gives you feedback, even if you can't take it in its in totality, you mm -hmm. owe them an explanation why. Yes. And another uh, point I wanted, I love your, your, the way you pull trust in there because one great way to do that and i've done this in the past through managing different teams where i felt that the perspective especially a development team where they didn't have the perspective of who they were developing for is having them actually spend the day on frontline phones answering now it wasn't out in front of our customers were too broad at that point but they had to be on the phone as tier one for one day the feedback it. i got was it was the most horrifying terrifying day they spent in their career it was great if the question came in on something they were a genius on, everything else. And, and that engagement they had with customers calling in frustrated with their technology raised their awareness of the people who are feeding this back to us as feedback from frontline workers. This is real. Like this is what they have to live with. So it was fantastic. One, one uh, young lady I interviewed for a role that was on my team she was supposed to build an enablement program for a large uh, shipping company. And she thought, hmm, these guys work in warehouses. She actually 
went and spent a day in two of their biggest warehouses side by side, asked to partner with them. And she said she could not believe what she learned with the struggles that they deal with, with just trying to clear stuff through. Right. And, and she fed that back. She said, I don't think we need to be enabling right now. I think we need to be fixing what they're trying to do. Like, yes, they're there because obviously based on what she said, the tech went out, technology went out, enablement was thought of after. So now she's coming in, but it sounded like there was some stuff wrong. There was no listening there. So she became that advocate purely because she cared enough to say, if I'm going to build an enabled program at this point, after it's gone out, I better know what they're doing and how they're using it and what they're struggling with. And you talk about trust. I am sure she had so much trust after being in those warehouses that she'll get the word back. Right. And she did change happen. Yeah. So you can't design and build technology from a conference room. Um, Yeah. You have to get out. And, and, and this is true. I mean, I think frontline workers are particularly affected because they tend to work in environments, you know, kind of, um, non-traditional or unpredictable environments, whether it's retail or field service or delivery or manufacturing or whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, even in a contact center where those frontline employees may be sitting in an air conditioned cubicle, um, there, there's still an experience that they're having that I just think if you're not involved in that, you just can't get your head wrapped around what that experience is like. And, you know, I think particularly true of dealing with customers because, Anybody who's in a role that's interacting with customers wants to do well. And it's stressful oftentimes to do well because customers are unpredictable and sometimes ask us things we don't know and and sometimes get angry and frustrated because we don't have Mm -hmm. the answers fast enough that are things that are outside of our control. And so, you know, you think of just a contact center rep, and I'm saying that, you know, I don't mean just a contact center rep, but like somebody in the organization could think, well, they just have to take calls all day and, you know, change, change an invoice or update an invoice or email. But it's like, you know, they're, they're dealing with a lot of those pressures. And I I love the, the example that you just talked about with your champions really getting under the covers of that, because you're just never going to understand and be able to build things that will allow them to be successful unless you've sat alongside them. Yeah, spend a day. I, I I always think developers should spend part of their enablement program is spending a day on the front line, answering yep. for whatever they're developing for. Yep. That's part of your enablement when you come on board. Is yep. you have to not understand the academic side of the, the solution or the technology, but the use of it, right? Yes, we have customer experience specialists and we have customer success. Uh, you know, managers, I think they're called now. and But it shouldn't all fall on their shoulders. Right. I really think you've got to develop, to implement, to deploy. You need to understand what it is that you're, I agree. you're deploying. And it's, it also, I love what you said about, and it triggered for me, the unexpected, right? Because frontline workers, we expect them to have the soft skills to deal with that difficult customer, right? You need to deal with them. Um, I know in my support, we had a training enablement program. We did say yes to say no, how to position to a customer that, you know, you're going to say yes, but really you're saying no, like we want them to do all this. And yet, well, then we'll throw technology out and assume that they can just get it. So that added stress, right. And, and variable that they have to deal with and, we need to be able to remove 
that component of it, right? The tech should be the fun. I would love to see the tech be the fun part of the job. Yeah. Wanting to use it, wanting to play with it, wanting to get involved. Again, you need to, part of the WIFM is make it attractive to play yeah. with, make it engaging. And give them a safe space to do so, right? To fail. Yeah. yeah. Right? Have them, don't have them fail the first time in front of a customer. Have them fail right. the first time in a safe environment with a SME that says, I can see why you wanted to do that, but here's, here's how you want to try. Yeah. Perfectly safe. I- this has been such a great conversation and I'm doing a horrible job of managing our time because as is almost always the case, I'm, I'm over the time that we had allotted. Uh, I'm curious. I think you had a question for me that I want to make sure that we cover um, before we go. Yes. And thank you for reminding me of that. I, I've heard you often on your podcast, you refer to uh, our frontline workers as the invisible workforce. With the pandemic that we have just come through, do you think this workforce has actually gotten more visible? And if not, what more has to be done? Yeah. I, so the, the, the short answer is yes, I do think they've become more visible. I think there's uh, an interesting story. I may or may not have told this on the podcast, but uh, I wrote an article about this for Inc.com. And I had submitted the article in February of 20, uh, what would that be? 2020, 2020. And uh, the editors at the time just didn't take the article, which I was kind of bummed about. And um, so I said, okay, well, you know, maybe next time. And then in, in April of 2020, the editors came back and said, hey, we're interested in covering that story now. <laughs> and the, the title of that article was The Invisible Problem with the Invisible Workforce. And um, so they wordsmithed the heading a little bit to pull in COVID or something into the um, title. And then they ended up publishing the article. And the reason that that was significant is because in in our business, we recognize this workforce as largely being invisible to many of us that go about our jobs. We go to a grocery store, we get our car serviced, we get deliveries at our office. Like there's so many things that are happening that we take for granted as consumers in the global economy. And there are millions, actually billions of workers, like literally billions 80% of the global workforce fits into this deskless worker category that I think is largely invisible to many of us. I do think if there's a silver lining of the pandemic, it's that it shined a spotlight on all of those roles. And are we paying attention to them the way that we should be? I don't know if we're there yet. I think we've increased our awareness. I think the fact that the general public is using the phrase supply chain is another example of the change that may have some positive impacts on us. The fact that my young 19-year-old son is aware, like he said supply chain, oh, there's inventory problems, there's supply chain problems, right? I hear my family talking about it. I hear, you know, in a conversation or a social conversation, like we're talking about things like the men and women that do these jobs. We've shifted terminology. We refer to them many times now as essential workers, particularly some of the men and women that you were talking about in healthcare and things like that. So we've shifted our terminology now as a society. And I think that's good for us. We've been passionate about this. I've had the good fortune of, of building technology solutions around the men and women in these roles for a long time. So they weren't invisible to me. I've got to see behind the scenes of the global economy. And I feel very, very fortunate to have seen that. But I think in a weird way, 
the pandemic has brought them into the front. And, you know, we talked at the top of this conversation today about the great resignation and about their mobility, their career mobility right now is unprecedented and good for them. I, they deserve it. And yeah. so I hope it does. I think it has served to raise the awareness. I don't think we're where we need to be yet. I think enterprises now need to really think about talent development in a new way. And it's not just about making that worker more proficient or efficient at doing the tasks that they need to do, which is still part of it. But it's also about giving them a space to develop professionally. We talked about the mentorship element. We talked about giving them experiential learning opportunities so that they can feel confident and competent in their job. And um, so I do think in a crazy way, if there's any, maybe only one silver lining to this pandemic, it's that maybe some of the men and women who had formerly been less visible to the average folks in, in you know, the global economy have, have kind of gotten you know, a, a little bit more attention now. And I think it's, it's always been deserved and uh, better late than never. So I do think it's a good thing. I agree. And when they, they, if there's one thing, it maybe they ran, maybe it all ran too smoothly before, right? And then you add disruption in, and you realize, oh wow, yeah, there's yeah, a lot I, of parts to this ecosystem that I appreciate and enjoy every day. That's the part that I think, you know. Again, I've I've had a pretty cool seat in a lot of what happens, and I, you know just as a technology guy that's been focused on mobile technology, I've, I've been in the belly of uh, airports and cargo hangars. You know, I've seen where they repair airplanes. I've seen where frozen food is stored and forklifts that have to be accommodated in the technology that has to work inside a freezer. Because if you're Cisco foods and you're delivering frozen food to restaurants, like you need to keep the entire supply chain cold all the time. Right. So I've mm -hmm. been very fortunate to be able to see a lot of those things. I don't think most people have understood a lot of that until now. And I think our society's overall understanding of that has grown. And I think that's a good thing for the men and women that we support in our business and for the men and women that we're talking about on this podcast. I think it's a good thing to have a greater level of awareness because uh, it, it helps develop the empathy for, holy crap, they're, they're going through a lot and we're expecting of them a lot. And oh, by the way, when we don't get what we need from them, all of a sudden, very basic things start falling apart in our global economy. And um, so, yeah, I think it's helped to, to raise the awareness of that. And we all need to continue to do a better job. And, and that's, I mean, not to kind of circle it around in the podcast, but that's kind of why this podcast is here to, to raise the awareness of what those folks are going through, what we're all trying to do to continue to improve. Innovation is not going to stop. We're not going to be expecting less of these men and women from a, a technology adoption standpoint going forward. So we know that that's all going to continue to advance. We just need to be a, a little bit more pragmatic, rational about how we expect to, to implement that change and uh, probably just have a little bit more of a, a human element as we approach those challenges. Absolutely. So, and listen. A good question. Listen to them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This has been a great conversation. This is um, one of the, the fastest hours. Um, this has been really good. And I, I told you that we target 35 minutes for the podcast. I'm really bad at this. Uh, maybe I just need somebody to come on, join me on the podcast and help be a time manager or something like that. But when I'm having a good conversation, I want to keep it going. And uh, I really, really enjoyed the conversation that we've had today. So thank you very much for, for joining me on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Excellent. Well, to our audience, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if so, if so, please share and rate the podcast. 
five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for new guests on the show. So uh, Debbie, if there's anybody else in your network that you think would be a, uh, a great guest, we'd love the introduction. And the same holds true to our audience. Shoot me a note on LinkedIn and make an introduction. And uh, we'd love to meet him and have him on the show. Debbie, thanks again for your time today. Thank you. 